Hey everyone, Pacific here with another episode of Insidious Inspirations. Just a reminder, if you like the show and you like what we do, one of the best ways to help our show grow is by leaving us a review. You can review our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or even Podchaser. And, without further ado, this week's episode. Even though video games have been around for decades, they're still the subject of fear-mongering. And while studies have repeatedly shown that video games aren't directly linked to violent behavior, that can't stop some people's imaginations running wild with the concept of death by video games. The 2006 film Stay Alive, directed by William Brent Bell and starring Frankie Muniz, took this idea and ran with it, portraying a survival horror game haunted by the spirit of the infamous Hungarian serial killer Elizabeth Bathory. As the movie's iconic tagline stated, if you die in the game, you die for real. But Stay Alive is only the tip of the iceberg when it comes to killer video games. In the years since, the internet has been inundated with countless creepypastas, short films, ARGs, and even songs about games where players literally put their lives on the line. And it all started in the summer of 1981 with a strange little arcade cabinet called Polybius. I'm Nicole Goodnight, and this is Insidious Inspirations. In the 1980s, especially in the early 80s, the video arcade was king. Home consoles existed, but they were in their infancy. The average gamer back in the early days would have been lucky to have anything as advanced as Pong at home. More complex games with better graphics required more space and more specialized technology. So the video arcade evolved out of the penny arcades that had grown in popularity over the first half of the 20th century. The pinball machines and simple analog shooters over time being replaced by more advanced electronic amusements. By the late 70s, most towns across America had at least one, and before the proliferation of the indoor shopping mall and the invention of the internet, the video arcade was the best place to hang out if you were too old for playgrounds and too young to drink. For kids, going to the arcade was like going to Vegas. It was a total sensory overload designed to get you to spend as much pocket change as possible. Which isn't to say that arcades were just for kids. The arcades of the 80s had amusement for all ages. One such local arcade was the Blue Diamond in Portland, Oregon. The building is still there today, although it's been heavily renovated and is now a jazz club, but in 1981, it was still a video arcade. The shop floor was lined with rows of cabinets from Pac-Man and Galaga to exciting new Japanese imports like Donkey Kong and Frogger. But there was one new cabinet that showed up at the Blue Diamond that summer which, despite its minimalistic cabinet design, started drumming up more attention than the rest. It was a simple black cabinet, with Polybius written across the top in white block lettering. The Polybius cabinet may have been nothing special, but according to the people who saw it, its graphics were what really got people talking. Most video games at the time either used vector graphics, images made up of straight lines, or raster graphics, images made up of pixels. Supposedly, Polybius was somehow able to utilize both. It didn't take long for Polybius to become a hit. Lines to play it frequently stretched all the way down the block, and there were frequent reports of kids fighting each other over who would get to go next. This popularity seemed puzzling to the owners of the Blue Diamond Arcade, as well as the handful of other arcades around Portland that had received Polybius cabinets. Even though the graphics were one of a kind, Polybius was still a pretty standard shoot-'em-up, not too different from the contemporary game Asteroid. But something about it was almost supernaturally addictive, almost like the cabinet could put anyone who looked at it for too long into a trance. 
driving them to play as long as they had coins to put in the slot. It was such an addictive game, in fact, that players totally ignored some of its more sinister elements, such as a soundtrack that supposedly included recordings of a woman crying, or misshapen human faces appearing faintly at the edges of the screen. None of these reports can be verified, though, because many of the people who played Polybius walked away from the cabinet with only hazy memories of the game, or, in some cases, no memories at all. They'd just step away from the game with no quarters left in their pockets and no memory of how they got there. Missing time wasn't the only side effect to this mysterious game. Other players reported nausea and headaches, which might seem normal for marathon gaming sessions, until you take into account that these symptoms could continue for days or even weeks after the victim had stopped playing. Some of the people affected by the game reported having chronic migraines well into adulthood. Many also reported night terrors, suicidal ideation, and an overall decline in mental health. Unfortunately, the more you played the game, the worse the symptoms got. At least one player said his symptoms were so bad that he could never play an arcade game again. Despite all this, Polybius still had the children of Portland in a vice grip. Even though these arcade owners had seen the cabinets be installed, nobody knew who made Polybius. The games had been delivered to the arcades in blank delivery trucks by men in suits who never spoke to the arcade owners, even when directly asked what they were doing. The only clue to the game's origin was some text on the loading screen which read, Copyright 1981. Sinislauschen. Sinislauschen, a portmanteau of the German words meaning senses and delete or extinguish, is not and has never been a real company, and its name is, according to native speakers, not even grammatically correct German. The men in suits kept coming back, though. Every so often, one or two of them would discreetly enter the arcade, open up the back of the Polybius cabinet, and switch out the game's ROM, taking the original away with them. They never talked to anyone and never explained what they were doing. They never seemed interested in the coins inside the machine, only seeming concerned with the data about who had been playing the game. According to rumors, Polybius' screen would remain illuminated even when the cabinet was unplugged and the ROM was removed. Then, after about a month of sick, hypnotized children and visits from mysterious men, just as anxiety surrounding the game hit a fever pitch, Polybius vanished. The trucks came back for them and they were carted off just as unceremoniously as they had been brought inside. Aside from a few mock-ups and hoaxes that have shown up at a few conventions over the years, Polybius was never seen again. The only evidence it was ever there in the first place being the disturbing memories of those who witnessed the sudden craze in real time. Now, you might think that a story like this would have been a media circus, but at the time this was all happening, nobody was talking about it. No gaming magazines announced Polybius' release, no papers or news stations covered the strange sickness that the game induced in its players. Outside of the minds of those who played it, Polybius might as well not have existed. So, what the hell happened? What was this mysterious game? What was it doing to the children of Portland? Who were the people who created it, and what did they want? When we return from the break, we'll take a look at some of the theories about what Polybius was, who might have created it, and, most importantly, what the purpose of the whole thing might have been. If you're interested in listening to the show ad-free and getting access to bonus content, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com insidiouspod. And now, back to our show. If you're a fan of Stranger Things or The X-Files, you've probably heard of MKUltra, the government program that used a mix of psychological torture and hallucinogens to try and unlock the secret to completely possessing the mind of another person. The CIA started the program in the 60s based on dubious intel that suggested the Chinese and Soviet armies were performing psychic tests on Korean prisoners of war. 
MKUltra was just one of many unethical human experiments performed by the American government during the Cold War. To those who had heard about such experiments, the Polybius controversy was creating a sense of major déjà vu. It would make sense, after all, that the government would be interested in studying the effects of video games on the developing young brain. Building on the things they learned through MKUltra, perhaps the CIA had been able to perfect their mind control technology into a form that could be contained within a simple arcade cabinet. That would definitely explain the men in black in the unmarked trucks, they definitely fit the common conception of a G-man. It would also explain why Polybius was so quickly and completely swept under the rug. The CIA wouldn't want any evidence of their activities getting out to the public, and more importantly, America's enemies. And Sinislauschen, pigeon German for sense delete, feels like exactly the kind of unimaginative fake company name that the U.S. government would come up with as a smokescreen. As much as that explanation might make a lot of sense, there's still no evidence that any of it ever happened. A second, more grounded explanation of the game surfaced on March 20, 2006, posted on CoinUp by a poster named Stephen Roach. Roach claimed to have worked on the game, which, according to him, was created not for the U.S. government or a shady German company, but for a South American company. Their goal, Roach said, was to revolutionize the games industry. According to Roach, there was no sinister reason behind the game's effects on its players. The nausea, seizures, and migraines were just a natural side effect of the game's extremely high-tech graphics being far beyond what most players would have been used to at the time. For a while, people believed this simple explanation. In April of 2006, Roach was interviewed by GamePulse.co.uk, but once the interview went to print, readers immediately noticed a lot of logical inconsistencies and elements that had changed since his original explanation in the CoinUp forums. In the years since, Roach's story has been completely debunked. If you go back to the original CoinUp post about Polybius, it now has an addendum at the bottom reading, Quick update, we just wanted to go on record here that Stephen Roach is full of himself and knows nothing about this game. We have it on good authority. So, that explanation, just like all the others, hit a dead end. As ingrained in popular culture as Polybius has become, its existence is still a huge point of contention for gamers and folklorists alike. Somewhat ironically, the name Polybius itself comes from an ancient Greek historian, who is most famous for his assertions that historians should never report on what they cannot verify. So, now that you've heard the legend, let's try and verify the story as best we can. It's time to take a look at some of the elements that might have contributed to the strange tale of Polybius. The earliest known reference to Polybius comes from coinop.org, a forum for arcade cabinet collectors that was active in the early 2000s. There are anecdotal accounts of the game being discussed on unset forums in 1994, but those have not been confirmed. All we know is, there are no records of the game existing prior to the year 2000. Although it's possible that this is a sign of a complex government cover-up, most folklorists and game historians take it to mean that the game never existed in the first place. But that just begs the question, where did the story come from? Let's start with the game itself, a strange, plain cabinet with never-before-seen graphics and a tendency to cause extreme physical and mental anguish in the kids who played it. There's no one game that exactly matches this description. But keep in mind, 1981 was a long time ago, and most of the people who swear they remember playing Polybius were kids and young teens at the time. Memory is valuable. Things can meld together over time, and despite the questionable status of Polybius itself, plenty of individual elements of the urban legend around it can be proven true. Producer and author Brian Dunning found accounts from 1981 where two arcade patrons fell ill at the same venue in Oregon. 
One collapsed from a severe migraine after playing Tempest, and another suffered nausea and stomach pain after playing Asteroids for 28 hours straight. Michael Lopez of Beaverton recalled the experience as an adult, saying, I began to feel a weird sensation in the back of my head, then my vision started going out. Little flashing lights. Suddenly I got sick and stumbled outside where I threw up all over the parking lot. One of my friends walked with me back home, but we didn't make it all the way there. My head hurt so bad. It got to where I couldn't speak. I couldn't walk anymore. I collapsed on someone's lawn four blocks from my house, rolling and screaming in pain. It felt like my head was cracking open. That was the first migraine headache I had ever had. I've had them off and on my whole life since. Though the causes of his migraines are unclear, it's often thought that Michael and others like him had their existing conditions triggered by the bright, flashing lights featured in the game. A similar controversy would happen in the 1990s, where an episode of Pokemon was linked to several children suffering epileptic seizures. Writer Patrick Kellogg has also suggested that people remembering the hyper-advanced, headache-inducing graphics are actually remembering the game CubeQuest. CubeQuest was released in 1983, not 1981, but it was a shooter like Polybius was said to be. CubeQuest was notable for being one of the first arcade cabinets to use Laserdisc graphics, an analog precursor to modern DVD and Blu-ray. CubeQuest was far ahead of its time with incredible graphics for its day, but because of the demands of running a Laserdisc game, the cabinets would break down frequently. This could possibly be the source of the rumors of G-Men coming around to take the ROM out of the cabinet. Which isn't to say real government agents weren't sneaking around in the arcades of Portland, Oregon in the early 1980s. Arcades were often linked to organized crime in the 70s and 80s. They were frequently used as front businesses for drug dealers and illegal gambling dens. And the fact that arcade operators were constantly exchanging bills for small change made them the perfect places to cover up money laundering. FBI agents and plainclothes police officers could sometimes be seen hanging around the local arcade, keeping their eyes peeled for any suspicious behavior. In fact, an FBI raid of an arcade in the Portland area happened only a few days after the two players got sick. And the lead-up to the raid involved agents checking the high scores and coin slots of various games for signs of tampering. Another game that may have been responsible for parts of the Polybius urban myth was the now-notorious 1980 arcade game Berserk. Berserk was, like CubeQuest, a game that used technology way ahead of its time. It was one of the first games to use voice synthesis, which was an insanely expensive process back in the 80s. The linear predictive coding required to create Berserk's 30-word vocabulary is estimated to have cost $1,000 per word. The game also featured an unkillable enemy called Evil Otto, an innocuous yellow smiley face who would sometimes show up in the game's maze. At first, Evil Otto would only move at about half the player character's speed, but as the player killed more and more of the game's other enemies and cleared more of the maze, Evil Otto would start to speed up. If he caught up to the player, they'd be instantly killed and there was no way to defeat him. He could only be avoided. Berserk's infamy began on April 3, 1982, when tragedy struck the Friar Tuck game room in Calumet City, Illinois. Friar Tuck's was located in the town's shopping mall and was decorated in the style of a medieval dungeon to go along with the name. The arcade had only been open for a couple of years when Peter Burkowski, a bright 18-year-old with plans to study medicine, suddenly collapsed of a heart attack minutes after logging his high score on Berserk. The coroner's report found that Perkowski had pre-existing heart defects which had been exasperated by walking into the arcade in the unforgiving Northern Illinois chill. According to the medical examiner, he'd seen similar heart defects before in athletes. Any sort of high stress or exertion would have resulted in his death in those circumstances, and Berserk was certainly a high-stress game. Despite the coroner's ruling, rumors around Burkowski's death still started to spread. 
The fact that Calumet City's town water tower was famous for having a smiley face painted onto it, one which somewhat resembled Evil Otto, only added fuel to the fire. People started making connections in an earlier death, that of a man named Jeff Daly, who supposedly also got the high score on Berserks at the same arcade. Chillingly, or perhaps not, depending on how familiar with horror tropes you are, Daly's high score was 16660, two digits off of being the number of the beast. However, unlike Burkowski, there's no evidence that Jeff Daly had ever touched a Berserk machine. He actually died in a car accident in Virginia. Furthermore, Berserk experts have debunked the legend about his high score as well. 16660 or 16,660 is actually a pretty low score for that game. Most people believe reports of his death were conflated and added to the story after the urban legends around Berserk had already picked up steam. However, there's one more death linked to Berserk, which has evidence to back it up. This happened in 1988, well after the other events we've talked about. Even six years after Burkowski's death, the Friar Tuck game room still had the same Berserk machine. And on March 20th, 1988, a young man by the name of Edward Clark Jr. decided to play a few rounds on it. There were some coins left sitting out on top of the machine, and thinking nothing of it, Clark took one and used it to start up the Berserk machine. After doing this, he was confronted by another local teenager by the name of Pedro Roberts, who said that the quarters were his and that Clark had stolen them. This led to a fight between the two boys, which came to a head when Roberts pulled out a knife and was promptly kicked out of the venue. Clark was, understandably, pretty shook up by this experience and stayed a while longer in the arcade, hoping in that time Roberts would get tired of waiting for him and leave. Unfortunately, he wasn't so lucky. As Clark and a few of his friends left the arcade later that night, they were attacked by Roberts, who, knowing that Clark would walk past on his way home, had been waiting in a nearby alley. Roberts stabbed Clark in the chest, and though his friends were able to get him to the hospital, he sadly died of his injuries. Robert, who was 17 at the time, was tried in 1990 and sentenced to 11 years in prison. Even though Clark's death had very little to do with the Berserk game, people still drew conclusions between him and Burkowski saying that Clark was another victim of the curse. Evil Otto had killed both of these young men in the game, and that had led to them dying in real life. The idea of the Berserk curse was pretty widespread by the mid-1990s, when people started congregating on Usenet groups to discuss arcade games. And it's entirely possible that, in the internet age, the Berserk legend partially evolved into what would become known as Polybius. So, while Polybius itself likely never existed, the individual elements of the legend are all rooted in real, recorded events. There was a game with graphics beyond the capabilities of anything else released at the time that had to be constantly monitored by technicians. There were also multiple games that were directly linked to the children who played them getting sick and dying. And FBI agents really were monitoring the activity on certain arcade cabinets in the Portland area during the early 1980s. But what about the more sinister side of the legend? the part about Polybius being used for secret government psyops. Well, in 1984, a film was released that could go away towards explaining where kids may have gotten that idea. It was called The Last Starfighter, and it follows the story of a teen named Alex who lives in a trailer park in rural America, clocks the high score in a game called Starfighter, and as a result finds himself enlisted in an alien war. In the movie, an alien force called the Ryland Star League created the Starfighter video game to train humans to pilot their battleships. The same kids who back in the 80s were throwing up after playing too much Tempest, had seen men in black suits checking the back of arcade machines, and had heard about how someone died playing Berserk, probably also would have gone to see The Last Starfighter in theaters and internalized the concept of games as military training. Interestingly, in an example of life imitating art, 
The U.S. government really has started using video games for their own sinister goals in the years since the Polybius urban legend gained traction. America's Army, a free-to-play multiplayer online shooter launched in 2002 as a way of convincing teenagers to join the U.S. military. The game incorporates real military strategy and technology and advertises itself as a way for young people who are considering enlisting to see if the Army life is really for them before they commit. The game was meant to be a seven-year project, but, like Polybius, people found it addictive to play and it exploded in popularity after its release. In fact, its servers remained active for 20 years afterwards, and there are multiple sequels and versions for different consoles and operating systems, including an arcade cabinet. The game has been praised by multiple outlets for its gameplay and realistic depiction of combat, but many others have called it pro-military propaganda that indoctrinates impressionable kids and completely ignores the moral dimension of combat in favor of showing off guns and vehicles. Sadly, death by video games is also a matter of fact rather than fiction, and the number of video game-related deaths has only increased since the 80s. Video games have only become more complex and more addictive, and there are countless stories of marathon gamers dropping dead after several days spent straight in the game. A 32-year-old man in Taiwan collapsed from a sudden heart attack in a gaming cafe after playing League of Legends non-stop for three days. One American man who suffered from epilepsy suffered a fatal seizure while playing EverQuest. And a 20-year-old game design student from the UK died from a serious blood clot that developed during a 12-hour Xbox binge. The reality may not be as dramatic as what was presented in Stay Alive, where players of the film's fictional MMO are murdered in the same way that their in-game characters die, but that doesn't make the reality any less tragic. Even though there's probably no way of proving that Polybius existed, it's without a doubt one of the most enduring urban legends of the digital age. It's the granddaddy of every video game creepypasta, and movies like Stay Alive likely wouldn't exist without its influence. It's really not hard to see why. Horror has always had a fascination with contrasting terror with play, taking toys we all remember from childhood and twisting them into something harmful. The older we get, the more we long to return to the simplicity of childhood, but oftentimes when we go back to the things that used to bring us joy in youth, we notice there might have been a cynical, depressing, or even sinister edge to the memories that used to be comforting. Like looking back and realizing the neighborhood kid you used to play with had a dad who was a problem drinker, finding out that an actor from your favorite show ended up in jail, or seeing the FBI raid your local video arcade for suspicions of illegal gambling. A lot of childhood is not understanding the hard realities of the world beyond your own limited experience. Bad things happen when we look back at childhood whimsy with adult eyes. Perhaps Polybius is just a digital age evolution of the killer doll or haunted music box, a manifestation of the anxiety that comes with realizing that the world of your childhood might not have been as idyllic as you remember. Combine that feeling of twisted nostalgia with decades of sensationalism and misinformation around the link between video games and violent behavior, and you've got quite a powerful basis for a scary story that feels just plausible enough to have been true. And in the end, who knows? Maybe somewhere out there in some collector's warehouse or antique store, there's still a plain black arcade cabinet with a hypnotic loading screen, illuminated despite not having been plugged in for decades waiting for someone to fall under its spell and log a new high score. Tonight's episode was written by Meg Malloy Tootin. Our host and narrator was Nicole Goodnight. Our editor and musician was the incredible Danny Sweet. And I'm your showrunner, Pacific S. Obadiah. Our producers are Tom Owen and Brad Miska. And this is a bloody disgusting show. For more information, 
visit www.insidious.show.